Welcome to Marketing School, the only podcast that provides daily top-level marketing tips and strategies from entrepreneurs that practice what they preach and live what they teach. Let's start leveling up your marketing knowledge with your instructors, Neil Patel and Eric Sue. All right, everybody. Today, we've got Robbie Ferguson. He is one of the co-founders of Immutable. And I'm going to let him explain what Immutable is in a second. But I've coming from a past life of gaming myself. Obviously, I am I'm a fan. And actually, they're a client of our ad agency, Single Grain. So yeah, there's a lot of synergies here. Glad to have Robbie on the pod. So Robbie, first and foremost, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So you guys have been described. I mean, we'll just say you, you're an Australian-based company. You're you're a market leader in blockchain gaming. You can say you're a lot of different things that are tied to it, right? You guys are like signing partnerships with GameStop and all that. But in your own words, how would you describe Immutable to a five-year-old? Yeah, well, to a five-year-old, I'd probably say play a video game like Fortnite or like Minecraft. The majority of what you spend money on is not downloading Fortnite. It's free. It's spending your money on cosmetics, outfits, skins, weapons inside of that game. But because you can't touch that stuff versus everything you buy in the real world, we do not allow you to sell that later on. And so the 200 billion US dollars spent on in-game items every year is completely exploitative where players get zero property rights for it after they've purchased it. Our mission is to take digital ownership via the infrastructure of an NFT and allow anyone to own and trade their in-game items and to align the incentives between player and publishers and create a much fairer ecosystem for building games. Great. And so like those of you that are listening from marketing school, I don't want your eyes to glaze over this NFT stuff. Oh my God, Eric's talking about NFTs again. I think what's important to understand is that the the business that Robbie's building and and how he's building for the future, which we'll talk about. And then we'll also talk about some of the things, the cool things that he's doing from a marketing and partnerships perspective. Robbie, what, what about your, your gaming background? Because my understanding is you have a gaming background. Did you sell anything in games before? Like, t- Tell us like a story there. Yeah. So, I mean, I I grew up playing games. I was obsessed with anything with an economy. I have a few thousand hours in RuneScape, in League of Legends. I actually played Neopets as one of the first games ever as as a child. And I remember playing RuneScape and I was playing on my brother's account. We used to share an account against the Terms of Services. And I was one day going into the wilderness and I, I took his full dragon armor set. I think it was 30 million gold roughly back in in that time, probably much more now, worth of armor. And I got sculled, which basically means I attacked someone and and that means I'm I'm vulnerable to losing everything. And I lost all of my gear. I felt so bad because this is my brother's account. He had done most of the work. I was not as good at RuneScape as him. I did not grind as hard. That that day I went and purchased with like my pocket money off a gold farming website, gold to, to purchase all that armor back. And then a week later, the account got banned for real-world trading, for spending money on in-game items. Six months later, RuneScape rolled out RuneScape Bonds, where you could legally spend money on that game and redeem in-game items. But of course, you can't cash them out ever. And so I think for a very long time, the world of gaming, just because it's run on centralized servers, just because you can't touch it, has been regarded with complete impunity by these gaming companies. It's been a model where they can extract 100% of value. They don't have to back or give anything back to, to sort of the end consumers and traders. But most importantly, it leads to very divorced incentives between the game creator and the end player. 
if my incentive is to extract revenue rather than to build the lifetime value of the assets that I've sold, the economy that I've built, it's very different to, for instance, a publisher who makes their money off making an economy valuable over time or making a set of assets or a gaming experience better and better over time. Um, so this is something I was, I was quite passionate about from a young age, but I, I didn't really know how to fix this until the first ever primitive of an NFT came out in 2017. And I realized you've got a broad audience. So maybe I'll, I'll kind of flag up front. To us, we should never be saying the word NFT to our end consumers. It is not about the technology of NFTs. What it is about is creating a game that people want to play for fun, that they have far more rights in than the existing model, that is 10 times more valuable to those end consumers and end players than the current model. If we're doing our job right, we should never have to say the word NFT in any lifetime of the user experience playing these games. I think it's just sort of insider industry terminology. And another really important thing is that we actually never focused on profile picture projects or collectibles or kind of speculative NFT assets. For us, the thing that's really interesting is things like God's Unchained which is our trading card game, where the average trading price of a card is between 50 cents and a buck. You know, people are coming in here and they're spending money that otherwise spend on digital Magic the Gathering cards or Hearthstone cards, but now at the end of their lifetime, they can sell those if they want to enter exit the ecosystem. Someone else can build a third-party marketplace and start to make fees off building a better experience. This is really about how do we have everyday objects that are not super expensive become ownable and tradable and create real economies out of it? So I think empowerment and making this driven by utility is fundamental to our mission. Yeah. I mean, this is exciting because I remember in the eighth grade, I played a game called EverQuest. So I, I think I'm a little older than you, but we went on a raid and then uh, we killed this dragon. And then uh, I ended up selling that helmet for $8,000 in eighth grade. And a helmet. I didn't even sell the character, right? I was like, whoa. And then I ended up selling the character later for like a couple thousand dollars. But like, it's just, that was just like a piece of it, right? So it's this whole like, you know, you deserve to, if you're going to put time into it, like I that character, by the way, if, if you're going to like, oh my God, he made so much money. No, I didn't on an hourly basis. I spent 3,000 hours on that character. So I was making like a couple cents, I think, an hour or whatever it is. But like, I think to your point, you're going to be able to, what the future is not only just in gaming, but we're going to be able to capture way more value as kind of the, the user, correct? Precisely. Even if you look at the billions of dollars spent on marketing every year, that is now a spend which can be redirected towards giving players value and customer acquisition will occur because of the ability to give players items for playing your game, their increased retention when they come and play your game. All of these things is going to shift kind of value spend on Facebook ads, Google ads towards the economy itself. Got it. Yeah. So I want to talk about marketing in a second, but I, I, I have your tweet pulled up here. One of your top tweets here is, gaming is bigger than music, movies, and TV combined. It's compounding 10% year on year. The $100 billion year spent renting, quote unquote, items is going to turn into a trillion dollar ownable economy. All of it will be built on Web3. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah. So I, I think something people don't understand about gaming is it is by far the fastest growing category in, in really the world. I mean, you, you have 200 billion US dollars spent every year now on in-game items. It's growing at a 10% compounding rate, but also it is the final category. If you look at where film is going to go, if you look at where TV is going to go, it's all going to be subsumed by interactive entertainment. Kids will go to concerts in digital environments. Gaming is going to encompass the vast majority of how we spend our hours in the future. When you work, in VR or augmented reality in 15 years from now, 
that will essentially constitute a game. We'll live in digital landscapes and environments, and, and that means we need digital assets. And so I think the most important thing is that when we enter that universe, we don't suddenly strip away all the property rights that people have been given because of physics in the real world. You know, I often refer to the example that your ownership of stuff in the real world is guaranteed by like the fundamental laws of the universe, atoms. It says when, when you have possession of something, you keep it, and possession is nine-tenths of the law. Just because we store and create things intangibly, we've suddenly taken that away. And I think that the future of a lot of ownership, but more importantly, the future of sort of financial empowerment will come through Web3. And so that's something I'm very passionate about. I think that gaming is is clearly the first category where this is going to be proven out and it is a massive category. Got it. Yeah, I love it. I I believe it. I think um, we'll talk about the practical use cases a little more because everyone's like, oh, not everyone, but a lot of people listening might be like, oh, I don't play any games. But like gaming is what a lot of people do growing up now. But you guys have raised, I believe, a, a couple hundred million dollars. So I guess I guess I'll ask about the business structure in a, in a moment. But like, what have you guys been doing from a creative kind of marketing and partnership standpoint? Honestly, uh, our marketing team is reasonably small. I think most of what we've built today has been on the strength of our product and the strength of our partnerships that we, we've kind of built. I think that's the most effective marketing in the space where we sort of, our goal is to win over a pretty small number of meaningful games. And so I think some of the you know bigger partnerships we've done have been really impactful. Things like powering TikTok's first ever NFTs, I think was a really big validation of the security infrastructure that we've built. If you're an enterprise company and you're entrusting your brand towards projects like Web3, you can't afford to have an FTX crisis. You can't afford to have something like a poly network bridge hack. You have to ensure that your users' assets are going to be secure, are going to be safe, and the user experience will be good. So I think TikTok choosing us for for that was a, a sort of really significant partnership. Same thing with GameStop, where you know they have one of the largest digital armies in the world. I think they've really catalyzed what it means to have an online community that are fervent evangelists of a company's brand and a company's mission and and that mission being power to the players. So, I mean, you know, part of the reason we we did that partnership and, and they ended up working with us is A, we're the right platform for them to build their technology ambitions on, which is an NFT marketplace and a, a place for gamers to trade. But B, because we really understand the value of those millions of fans and how that can actually form a really effective source of value for every game building on Immutable. A game comes and launches on us now and they instantly have 2 million fans from GameStop audience. And I think that's a, a community-driven marketing strategy that has only really been formalized in the last three years, probably through crypto, because you have the idea of tokens, which is effectively programmatic equity. The reason tokens are so powerful is not necessarily because they're decentralized. And here I'm talking about fungible tokens, as in Bitcoin, Ethereum, IMX. It's because it's effectively a programmatic way to allow people to be collective owners of whatever thing you're building. So now, if you are building a two-sided marketplace and your problem is a cold start problem, you can say, well, cool, I'll give 10% of this equity programmatically to people who provide value to the platform. And that can be given away over the first two years. It's the most powerful marketing invention of like really the last few decades. Yeah, it's um. So I have this this bust over here. This is Warren Buffett, but on the side, it's Charlie Munger, right? So you know, he always says, "Show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome." And when you give people kind of this pseudo equity, it incentivizes them to talk about it more, which is why you, I guess you saw all these pumps with the NFT stuff. But that aside, I, it doesn't change human behavior. Human behavior is still human behavior, and like, I it, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. So let me just ask this then. 
it sounds like you guys, I mean, you guys are developing some of your own games, but you guys are also recruiting a lot of developers in, right? And then your kind of value prop for these gaming developers or game developers is that, hey, we're going to, A, we're going to share our community with you so you guys can grow a lot faster. But B, like, we're also going to help you Web3. We're going to make it easy for you to on-ramp to, to Web3. Is that correct? Yeah. So we're really a full stack platform. Our goal is if you're a game and you have a successful uh game or, or, or sort of um, ability to make a game, we can take you from being a Web 2 experience to being a Web 3 experience. We can help you create a sustainable economy. We can help to all of the Web 3 technology aspects. So we use ZK rollups or Layer 2 on Ethereum. If you're technical and, and you're listening right now, and which basically means that instead of five NFT transactions per second, which is possible on Ethereum Layer 1, we can do nearly 10,000. And we do all of that carbon neutrally and for $0 in transaction fees for these games. We also make it ridiculously easy to build. You don't have to touch smart contracts or blockchain technology. You're using Stripe-like Web2 APIs. The reason that is so significant is if this is going to go mainstream, we have to make this ridiculously easy to build upon. And I think that's the thing that's done poorest by our peers in the marketplace today, by other blockchains, because they're all investing in you know, better programming infrastructure or guides. And I think at the end of the day, this just has to be, hey, tap into our APIs and, and you don't have to actually understand anything about blockchain in order to build something successful. Yeah, I was watching some of your, one of your other interviews and I, I think, so for example, let, let's say, um, you know, Hearthstone or let's use a uh, Magic the Gathering, right? It, it sounds like the move here is like, you get one of these big players and then, you know, the dominoes will fall and then all of them will just start to come on. Right. And I think in the last interview, you weren't really able to reveal any names. Are there, that's, that was like four or five months ago. Are there any names that you revealed recently that people might know of? Yeah. So one of the big ones, Imvu, IMVU has millions of monthly active players. They just hit a million wallets on Immutable. So, I mean, they're basically a legacy Web2 title uh, that has been around for nearly, you know, two decades now and has built a gray marketplace economy where they monetize by taking clips off trades as people kind of trade in, in this. Um, it's, a, it's a social kind of metaverse, similar to, say, Second Life. And the key thing they're doing is they're just updating that so now their players can own their assets and they can have a much more uh, aligned business model. And you know they're blowing the user stats of other games out of the water. So I think that's a really kind of significant one. We have Alluvium, which is probably the largest Web3 game in the world today. They sold $72 million in a weekend last year. I'm um, in the middle of the bear market as well. So I mean, this is not really bull run stuff. This is people who fundamentally believe in the game and massive audiences, millions of people coming to, to try it out. Got it. Yeah. So I, I guess A, that's very exciting. Congratulations on that. B, you guys, are, I think you're valued at 2.5 billion right now, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. Um, how do you guys take it to the next level? So you, you I think that the, the move is pretty clear to me. It's like focus on, you know, getting, um you know, top games, you know, top communities. And is that kind of the, is that trajectory or is, or is there something else there? Our goal is get as many awesome quality games building on the platform as possible. Last year, we went from five to over 120, fifth to first in terms of relative market share. The stat that just came out is games building on Immutable received over a billion dollars US in funding last year. This is the most out of any competing L1 or L2 in the world, including Solana, Polygon, Binance, Aptos, Sui, et cetera. Yep. So that's a really exciting stat for us. Um, I think it shows the quality of, of kind of the, the games that we've won and what kind of brand we're trying to build as well. Ultimately, our vision is all of the world's unique value will turn into NFTs. Mm -hmm. This won't just be gaming assets. It will be when you buy a term deposit at the bank. 
that should be tradable. When you buy an insurance contract, that should be a digital asset. When you buy a house, and the simplest reason for this is not digital ownership. Digital ownership actually does not matter outside of objects that are inherently digital. Because if I have true digital ownership of a house that exists in the real world, the local property title system can always say, actually, that doesn't matter. And my the value of my digital NFT ownership ends there. What will be the significant catalyst for most of the world's value will be superior liquidity and utility, aka you can trade things for cheaper prices or things you couldn't previously trade. Or on the utility side, you have better access to cheaper financial services. The example I always give here is, imagine you live in a region where local banks are immature and the cheapest mortgage you can get to buy a house is 8%. And now imagine DeFi gets so efficient that there is online competition for appraisals of any house as an NFT, such that you can get a mortgage for 6% anywhere in the world. It'll be slow. It'll take time for DeFi to get more efficient than local financial service providers. But once it does, 90% of the homes in any region where you can get a 200-bit superior interest rate on those homes will be overnight tokenized into NFTs. Hundreds of billions of dollars of value. And what we're going to see is this shift is the biggest pressure for, for any vertical kind of shift is, is financial pressure because you only have a, a limited number of customers who have to make the switch. It's it's kind of like um, vendors and, and, and business driven. And we're going to see a, a pretty monumental shift. I think it'll take some time. I think it'll take five to 15 years depending on the vertical, but the world will end up tokenized and for the most part kind of securitized. I I love that. And, and here's the thing. So your name alone, your the fact that your name is immutable also means that you can literally like you can switch just from gaming and then like you can build a platform from all this stuff. Like, is that the long, long-term vision? Well, if you're building a platform that can allow anyone to build a, a tradable real economy with hundreds of billions of assets, and that's what we're talking about with a single game alone. If yeah. you look at RuneScape, like millions of players, each of them would own thousands of assets. You are yeah. easily into nearly a trillion assets over the lifetime of that yeah. gamer economy. Yeah. If you're bringing liquidity to all of that, if you're solving user experience for that, solving like... The, the tens of billions of financial assets or, or like the single digit billions of homes around the world is a trivial problem. I um, mean, so the infrastructure that we're building for gaming actually solves pretty much every other vertical because it's the hardest use case of, of unique value to yeah. solve for and to create liquidity for. I mean, it sounds like a, sounds like a trillion dollar plus company, man. That's, so. that's the goal. Cool. Okay. So, I mean, obviously the business has been scaling. The space has been scaling. You guys went to five to a hundred plus games or so. You guys, you guys also have a hundred, a couple hundred people now. So how, how have you been scaling as a leader? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you have to hire well is pretty much the, the most important thing. So last year we built our exec team. We now have a full bench. Uh, it's really exciting. We've, we've brought on phenomenal people. Um, the, the finance director of Facebook running a $70 billion PL became our CFO. And so now governance and financial transparency is one of our key strengths, which is an incredibly important thing, I think, in a, a post-FTX world, in a in a post-Lunar world. We brought on Afterpay's chief information security officer, Atlassian's head of product management, Safety Cultures, and Airtree's COO, one of Australia's most successful startup CEOs, Jill Finlay. I think uh, Justin Hulog, who ran Riot Games Asia, is leading our studio effort. So we've been able to pull on some really phenomenal people over the last year that is ultimately the most important kind of thing we can do to, to scale ourselves and, and scale the company. I think the second thing is just it requires probably a 
I think you can't really be a successful. I always I'm confused about this because I think it's very difficult to be a successful entrepreneur with a with a high ego, and um, because I think you require so many changes to yourself to be successful over the maturity of the company that you kind of have to accept that you just have to make fundamental changes at times when you start out. You're doing everything. You're an individual contributor. Suddenly you're a manager. Suddenly you're a manager of managers, and suddenly you're trying to steer this big ship and trying to steer culture and trying to steer a strategy through you know a, a, a sizable number of people. So. I think it just requires a good degree of self-awareness, reading a lot of books and, and just being obsessed with learning how you can do the next stage better. So, I mean, that's what we focus a lot on. We, we read a lot of books. A shout out to, to Matt Mokery, who wrote The Great CEO Within. I think that was a very significant book for us to read early on. That kind of gave us a, a head start. And recently, we've been pretty obsessed with Scaling Up, which is kind of a, you know, a, a, a business building book. Yep. Yeah, scaling up is great. I I saw in one of your previous interviews you had the hard thing about hard things. Uh, Matt Markery's book; these are all good. So I guess so for you. I mean, it's it, is this the have you had businesses before this, or is this the first one? We've done startups, definitely yeah. nothing of this scale. So we, we previously built, uh, my brother and I, you know, a, a League of Legends betting platform. You could bet on your own matches. We built a machine learning driven Shopify competitor where you could automatically optimize your store from pricing and copy. So uh, you know, we, we we've always kind of been very keen to build um, technology products that make a difference and, and particularly kind of in gaming or e-commerce. But this is the first one that, you know, had, had significant scale to it. Got it. I, I want to come back to that one in a second. But like what I've learned over the years, it's, you know, my friends and I, we, we, we started small, we were at these conferences and we'd always talk about, oh my God, what's the newest marketing tactic? What's the newest strategy? Da, 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 da. And then you grow and then you grow past a certain point And it's like, I still host events right now or whenever we see each other. And now it's like, we don't talk about tactics anymore. We don't talk about strategies. We don't talk about the how anymore. We just talk about who are we going to hire? Who are we going to hire? And literally, like, it's the same thing for you. But for you, like, do you did you expect this to happen? Because it sounds like this is a niche situation where the market is just pulling you. That's where you know you have product market fit, right? So was that intentional? Did you know this was going to happen? Like, what happened there? I think, yes, I think push versus pull is an apt analogy. I think from day one, we were pulled. I mean, we we're barely keeping up during the first couple of years, 100 plus hour weeks every single week. I think that's when you know you, you've, where, where you just kind of have to kind of stay afloat. That's when you know you've found something really meaningful or, or there's there's a lot of external pulls on your time and demand. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we were particularly good at marketing. I think we kind of just understood our audience and the products we were building and kind of Thankfully, in, in Web3 and crypto, that is marketing. It's having authority on your product and, and kind of understanding the space and the partnerships that emerge from that were, were significant signals. But I think we we probably didn't do it too formally, especially early on. That makes sense. And, and here's the other thing. I think you guys picked a great spot to start into because you coming from a gaming background, same for me, it's gamers are rabid fans, right? And we're just, it's such a crazy community and they're so engaged. And if you look at like the daily active users with the top games, like they're just locked in and they're spending the top, the top people spending in those games are spending like a million dollars plus, right? So I think that that kind of has its own little, you create your own little viral loop there. So smart. I wanted to talk about the the future of Web3. So what are you excited about in particular? Because we're, we're recording this right now where people are still like, you know, down about everything, you know, the whole FTX thing is still going on. So what are you excited about in the future of Web3? I would be remiss to say I am excited for the first few mainstream games. I think they will be the most significant catalyst of mainstream adoption. If you look at the total active users in crypto today, it's probably hovering around 30 million. One mainstream game will triple that. And 
it will be incredibly impactful because people won't even know they're using Web3 under the hood. And I think that's when we start to reach maturity in Web3. We stop referring to things as denominated by its Web3 characteristics, but instead it starts to transform the category that it's being applied to. We're not going to refer to it as DeFi. We're going to refer to it as like finance in the future or like loan infrastructure. We're not going to refer to it as Web3 gaming. It will simply be gaming. And the expectation is that you get your property rights in the same way that, you know, when you go and play your favorite desktop game, you don't say this is a desktop free-to-play game. These are categories that are kind of become alighted by the overall usefulness that the, the product has and when it reaches ubiquity. That's the thing I'm, I'm most excited for. I think I'm excited to see the bear run shakeouts and probably immature or insecure products that that shouldn't be there. I think we're going to see a reversion to Ethereum. We, we've already seen a little bit of this, I think, in a, a, a world where people become more understanding of the value that high level of consensus security and, and sort of a high level of diligence on all the infrastructure that's been invested in Ethereum to date comes to fruition. I also think we're going to see a shift away from custodial products and an emphasis on sort of solutions that yeah, don't, don't have that centralization risk factor. And what do you, what's an example of that just for the audience? So, I mean, our, our product is completely self-custodial. You can always own your own keys. You can use it through different wallets if you like, and, and some of those may be sort of custodial, but the protocol itself is self-custodial. The reason that's so important is it avoids things like a bridge hack, where there's been over $4.2 billion of user funds lost because of bridge hacks. So every side chain, sometimes you hear these referred to as kind of L2s, mm-hmm. is basically just a blockchain with a centralized bridge to Ethereum itself. And there's a very high vulnerability factor for those. So I think people being more aware of the risks involved in in products like that and investors as well is a good shift for the industry. Got it. You know, in this down market right now, are you guys looking at any M&A opportunities? Are you guys looking at scooping anything? Yeah, I think we're we're opportunistically always uh, kind of looking. I think the the position we're in is a is a really fortunate one. Post our raise, got over two hundred million US in cash in the bank, plus a significant amount of tokens, hundreds of millions of dollars, and the foundation has a, a nearly a billion dollar war chest for going and helping people build Web three games. So I think we're we're in a fortunate position from there. Obviously, macro is tough right now, and we want to ensure that we have a really long runway. But I think we're we're sort of in a in a fortunate enough position. Fascinating. So I'll just throw this out to the audience. I mean, like, you know, potentially what Robbie might do is wait for the market to take a little more, look for really strong communities out there, really strong gaming communities that just aren't doing that well. And he can scoop them up for pennies on a dollar. I'm not saying that's what he's going to do, but trying to get you guys to think that way. One more question about like, so I I remember I I go to a lot of these Web3 crypto conferences, whatever, whatever you want to call them. And I would see Immutable sponsoring a lot of these, right? How has that strategy worked out for you? Like, would you say it's really good or like, you know, meh, whatever? Because I'm I'm always curious about these. I mean, I think if you're not doing data-driven marketing, why are you spending money? I'm very big on funnels and understanding ROI aligned to business outcomes. It's always hard with brand and awareness. So I think a few of these things you have to try and I think the effectiveness of the ROI comes from the campaigns you build around it. Okay, you sponsor the conference, but then it's about well, how, how does how many news stories does that turn into? How many meaningful interactions when you're meeting customers and they see your brand above them while they're talking to you? What's the increased conversion chance of that deal being won? So it's mm. it is a trickier way to measure um, the effectiveness of, of yep. kind of promotional spend. There, I'm definitely personally, I'm a big fan of like viral loops um, and, and products that inherently grow, like building virality and marketing into the product. I think you cannot have too many ways to share a product. I'm a big fan of sort of using tokens to incentivize um, adoption and, and, and virality and a big fan of performance marketing and sort of very specific ROI-driven spend. 
Love it. We're speaking the same language here. So, you know, you strike me as a guy that is always trying to get better, always reading a lot. I mean, is there anything in particular, like any sources you go to, or like what's the most interesting thing that you've read recently? Big fan of Stratechery. I listen to a few podcasts, you know, all in um, Tim Ferriss when I can, mostly based on the the people who are coming and speaking. I try, I probably think reading is the, the biggest one. So I try and read quite a lot of business books. I can't read them during the weekday or I can't sleep. So I, I, I keep those to the weekends or holidays. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going home and reading for four hours. I think there's it's kind of a, a balance and you can have it definitely too much noise. So I, I try and keep my input sane and kind of focus on – I'll often reread books because I think the value of the book is not the knowledge inside of it. It is the change in behavior and the emotional conviction it gives you over the importance of those behaviors. What's the most reread book for you? Probably either Radical Candor or The Great CEO Within. Got it. For you, like you're, I'm thinking back to my my gaming days or my poker days habits where I'd stay up to like 4 or 5 a.m., go get some fast food in the morning and all that. Very not conducive to running a business. And earlier you mentioned kind of health and fitness and all that. So I'm just curious, like, how do you run the business now? Are you go, go, go the whole time until you burn out? Or like, how do you structure that? Yeah, look, I've I haven't found that. I think having an excellent team that you want to, you know, kind of deliver to every every week, I actually think is really meaningful because the mission is exciting. I, I'm 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 obsessed with what we can build in the future. But having day to day and week to week people that you kind of want to show up for and that you really enjoy working with just makes it very fun. I'm a big fan of kind of bringing fun to work, making it playful. I think especially at, at kind of this level of scale, it's really just about making one or two decisions per week that will have a chance to add billions onto the company's value or help you hit our goal of empowering hundreds of millions of players faster. It's not really about trying to do as many small things as one. So I think it's about creating the environment where that's really sustainable and then raising your blue line imperative. So when you spend an hour, what is the value of that hour? And having a very good internal model of that. Final question for you, Robbie. We talked about team building earlier, and uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. How did you go about finding all these great people, whether it's from Facebook or Riot Games and all that? Did you do it yourself? Recruiter? What was the move here? A lot. So everything. We have a big internal TA team. They have been amazing and have helped hire a lot. We put a lot of effort into our senior hires because they will hire everyone else. I mean, they bring a network. If you're hiring someone really senior, like most of our exec team members brought substantial numbers of people with them, people who are excellent and and really well vetted. We use a lot of network-based hires, um, so referrals. We source people personally. I will ask my network if if a hire is particularly important. We have very high hiring standards. We I think it's the most important thing. And an A all-round team or an A-plus team will deliver far more results, a third of the size than a significantly poorer quality team. And there's nothing more demoralizing than working with someone that you know is not kind of living up to the standards or expectations of the company. So I think it's the biggest gift we can give company and company culture is maintaining and continuing to raise those standards over time. And you guys are remote, right? Or in the office? We're remote first, um, but we have a sizable amount of people in Sydney and a lot of the exact team kind of comes in every day, et cetera. Got it. All right. Great. Well, Robbie, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you and Immutable online? I'm 0xferg on Twitter. That's probably the best way. And Immutable is Immutable on Twitter. All right. Everyone go check out Immutable. It's going to be the future trillion dollar company. I'm calling it. Robbie, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Eric. 
We appreciate you joining us for this session of Marketing School. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit marketingschool.io for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you find true marketing success. That's marketingschool.io. Until next time, class dismissed.